Father God, um, we are here again this morning. We are here humbly and uh, expectantly. We are here again to depend on your grace, to depend on your forgiveness, the bigness of you. Teach us this morning. Teach us this morning as it says in Micah 6.8. Hear now what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, O you mountains, the Lord's complaint, complaint, and you strong foundations of the earth. The Lord has a complaint against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? And how have I wearied you? Testify against me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of bondage. And I sent, be- I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O oh, my people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, counseled, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered, you, answered him from Acacia Grove to Gagal, that you may know the righteousness of the Lord. But with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. He has shown thee, old man, what is good and what the Lord requires of me, but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with us. abounds in deepest waters 
on hips or teeth clenched, how often do we march into God's throne room with a ready complaint? And yet we seem surprised when he is the one who has a bone to pick. Daily we strive for independence and control, determined to be self-made and proud of it. But God calls for submission to his will, justice, kindness, and that we be humble about it all. A great and inelegant fall awaits those who swagger, pretending know-it-all strength, better to acknowledge our true weakness, so that the God who is all-wise can take the nothing that we are 
and create something golden. Give you all a minute if you'd like to turn to 1 Corinthians 1 with me. Verse 18 says, The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. <clears throat> but we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. As the scriptures say, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. So where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, and the world's brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish. Since God and his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom, he has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. It is foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven, and it is foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. But to those called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. This foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans, and God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strength. Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. God has united you with Christ Jesus. For our benefit, God made him to be wisdom itself. Christ made us right with God. He made us pure and holy and freed us from sin. Therefore, as the scriptures say, if you want to boast, boast only about the Lord. In the last week, uh, back home in Oklahoma, and that rule is one does not dismantle a home of 48 years uh, in a week. Um, we uh, scratched the surface of uh, getting mom's stuff sort of begun to be packed. And uh, Brian's yelling at me because I... How's that? All right. We didn't get the gnomes packed. <laughs> there aren't enough storage containers in Oklahoma. <laughs> they, are, uh, they are a formidable part of my mother's home. <clears throat> um, but we did get some other stuff packed and I have joined uh, the ranks of such illustrious people as Craig Sells and I rented my first storage unit. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, the great thing about going to Oklahoma, uh, Will Rogers said this, this isn't original to me, he says, if you don't like the weather, wait five minutes, it'll change. Last Sunday in Oklahoma City, it was 75, it was warm, people were sitting out at Starbucks in their shorts, soaking in the sun, 12 hours later, it was 25 degrees. A north wind came roaring down from Canada, unstopped. 
by anything on the plains and hit my house with fury. And it was cold the next morning, very cold, because 25 was like the daytime high at 2 a.m. I think the day finished at 12 degrees. Um, even when there are rules, things change. Last Sunday, I, uh, I decided I would be a good pastor. You know, you're away. It's like nobody really knows. You don't really know anybody in town anymore, so it's really tempting to just go to Bedside Baptist and not go to church. But, but I had been checking out a place on the web for a while, a little church in Oklahoma City called Metro Mennonite Church. Well, you had me at Metro. I want to find out more about this group of folks. And uh, so I, uh, I, I emailed the pastor, told him who I was, and uh, uh, he was very gracious, invited me, said, Dad, we're just a little group meeting our home. And I thought, oh, a little house church, how nice. I didn't realize how little. There were six of us. <laughs> but it was a really powerful conversation uh, about what it means to follow Jesus in, in the context that they share. And here's this little group of five people, besides me, who uh, have one of the most significant outreaches to veterans suffering from uh, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, in the state of Oklahoma, which, let's face it, government funding being what it is in Oklahoma, it's not hard to have a pretty profound program with just a few volunteers, but, but they do. Uh, pastor owns three horses and they do equine therapy. Um, one of the guys who looks like he stepped off the set as an extra from Duck Dynasty um, uh, does uh, everything from helping them find jobs to counseling to just hanging out. And it's what these folks do. It's what this congregation does. It doesn't have committees and programs and budgets and it just meets together kind of like a missionary order on Sunday morning and then the rest of the week they live their lives and invest in the lives of vets with um, PSTD, PTSD, there we go, whatever. <laughs> There are always surprises on trips. And one of the things you learn is that there are always rules. There are rules when you travel. When I, uh, when I got to Ontario uh, to fly out, I, uh, I, Debbie had printed my boarding passes with United in advance, and I had pre-clearance with uh, transportation uh, with the TSA. I am so I am so acronym challenged this morning. There must be some disease, post Oklahoma stress disorder. I don't know. But uh, I was pre-cleared. And what does that mean? I'm pre-cleared. It says, well, you don't have to take your shoes off. Oh, good. <laughs> uh, don't have to take my belt off. Don't even have to take my outer coat off. I just have to, you know, do the old thing with the computer uh, and, you know, surrender in the little tube. Um, 
flying home from Oklahoma City, I wasn't pre-cleared. I don't know, probably did something, said something wrong, and, you know, the National Security Agency, the NSA, found out and uh, <laughs> told them to take me off the TSA pre-clearance list. Ah, whatever. But rules aren't easy. Um, whether, whether we're uh, reinterpreting what it means, no standing on shoulder, um, or, uh, or, or whether you're trying to explain American football and baseball to IVEPers. Uh, you discover rules are not easy. Um, uh, Ewa and James before her very patiently listened to my descriptions about why things are done in American football the way they are, and they just smile, whatever, <laughs> sure. I don't understand a word you're saying, but uh-huh. Uh, and finally, I think I've told them, yeah, finally I just told them both, look, with American football, it's real simple. There are committee meetings punctuated by brief moments of violence. It's the American culture at its finest. <laughs> But the reality is, when there are rules and we don't like them, we want to figure out how to break them. Breaking rules gets a lot of our time and attention. How can I drive just five miles an hour faster on the freeway and not get pulled over? How can I slip that one by? How can I wiggle that tax deduction down just a little bit more? But we do want some rules to be followed. I was struck by this title, the, the, the book, The Art of Friendship, 70 Simple Rules for Making Meaningful Connections. <laughs> 70 Simple Rules for Making Meaningful Connections. Although if you're dealing with electricity, apparently there are only three rules. Uh, don't mix water and electricity, keep away from power lines and wires make sure everything's plugged in uh, and they're in good working order, not overloaded. And I guess there's a fourth rule, when in doubt, call Randy Pickering. <laughs> but we do want some rules to be followed, whether they're the 70 rules of, 70 simple rules, for making meaningful connection with friends, or three <coughs> simple rules for making sure you don't get electrocuted. We do want some rules to be followed. But mainly, we think rules are pointless or arbitrary or dumb. I was a junior in high school, living in the men's dorm at Corn Bible Academy in Corn, Oklahoma. And on the first Sunday, I went to church, and like a good young, young man from Oklahoma, I drove my car the six blocks to church. It was the 70s. Gas was much cheaper. <clears throat> and we thought it would last forever. And I drove those six blocks to this beautiful old building where there were no parking stripes. A little bit like our parking lot, only intentionally there were no parking stripes. Ours have just faded away. Um, I parked my car where I thought I could get, make a quick getaway Sunday and you know get back to the dorm for that delicious dorm Sunday dinner of meatloaf. Um, but I parked, and I got out, and got met at the door by 
one of the ushers of the Corin Mennonite Brethren Church, big old burly guy, who didn't greet me with the joy of the Lord. He simply said, you can't park there. Wow, welcome to the new church you're going to go to for the next two years. How fun is this? Well, what do you mean I can't park there? There's no, no parking stripes anywhere. You can't park there. That's where all the old ladies go in and out, and your car will get run over. They're old ladies. They're not going to drive that fast. Really? You think so? Okay, I see your point. I'll go move my car. Dumb, pointless, arbitrary rule. Kind of like Deacon Jacobs, who wants to welcome you to our little church. Please respect the rules of rigidity in our community of righteousness. Uh, you may not chew gum in the church house, and doggone it, I wanted somebody this morning to be chewing gum so that I could just walk up and go, okay, hand it over. Um, you may not speak or whisper during the message. You may not slouch in the pews or sing too loudly during the presentation of the hymns. Yeah, you may not act like Craig. Uh, you may not turn sideways in the pews or touch another person. We do not greet each other or shake hands. There will be no laughter, giggling or smiling. All such levity and mirth is to be regarded as disrespectful of God's house. You cannot dress appropriately. Please stay home. Do not bring unsafe friends, relatives, or neighbors to our worship service. Do not rattle the pages of your Bible when turning to passages of Scripture, and so on. You get the point. We make lots of pointless, arbitrary and dumb rules. At least we think they're pointless and arbitrary and dumb until we depend on them. Like Seattle and Denver will be depending on rules this afternoon to figure out who the best team in American football is and those moments of violence between the committee meetings they'll have. The prophet Micah established some rules in the 8th century before Jesus, in the land of Judah. He establishes those rules because society was falling apart. Judean society had had one bad king after another, disregarding over three centuries the great Davidic covenant that had been made between God and, and King David that would bless the nation and make it whole. Now the nation was becoming unhinged. The Levitical covenant wasn't working. People didn't know it anymore. The Torah was going unread and unheeded. And the prophet Micah needed a primer, a simple way to describe what it meant to be a follower of Yahweh. And so in dramatic fashion, in Micah 6, the prophet presents... Yahweh as suing for abandonment. The language of Micah 6 is the language of an indictment, of, of a court scene. The God of the universe has been abandoned by his people and he sues for alienation of affection. He declares that they have walked away and he makes his charge and he reminds them in verses Four and five of all the time, of some of the times throughout history when he has been there for them. And yet their response has been to ignore him over and over and over again. And so the prophet Micah, using the voice of God,
phrases the rhetorical question, how is relationship with God to be preserved? Is relationship with God a matter of quantity? Lots of sacrifices, lots of bulls, lots of blood, lots of gore, lots of stuff. Do we, do we finally and truly and ultimately identify with God in the midst of spectacle? And then the still small voice of verse 8. Micah renders the obvious verdict against Judah. No. He's already shown you what you need to do. Do justice. Love mercy. Walk humbly with God. Micah is very strategic and purposeful in the words he uses and in the ordering of the words he uses. Do justice comes first. Don't don't just do good. Don't just be givers out of your largesse. Do justice. Seek the welfare of the other. So much of what we do in the church that passes for justice is often about putting some salve on our conscience. And Micah's challenge is justice done right, justice done first, will cost us. It will sting a bit. It will remind us that we are people of extraordinary privilege. We are the one percenters on our planet. Every one of us in here live a lifestyle that 99% of the people on planet Earth would literally give their right arm to have. We think, oh, I'm just, I'm barely getting by. I can barely keep my head above water. I, I, I struggle to make ends meet. Yeah, try Try it on a dollar a day. Try, try a week of absolute poverty. You can't even get by on macaroni and cheese in absolute poverty. Doing justice requires a reordering of our priorities. Loving mercy isn't just about being nice people. A lot of us are nice people. I know I'm not, but a lot of us are nice people. We're, we're, we're kind and we're, we're gentle and we're sweet and we're patient and we're charitable and we're loving, but we don't always show mercy. Mercy, the Hebrew word has said, can be even more broadly translated as faithful, as as covenant faithfulness. Do justice. Love faithfulness. Love the fact that you're in it together with each other. The great American myth that somehow I did this on my own, I built this, is wrong, according to Micah. 
Micah 6.8 tells us that if we love mercy, we are in this together. And we have a covenant responsibility to God and to one another to be with each other. And then walk humbly with God. Not just be the still in the land, not just be quiet, not just keep our public life and our private life separate. Walk humbly with God. means we trust God to have all the answers, not ourselves. That you and I live in a world that is full of ambiguity. And we try to make faith work in the midst of it. But there's still the ambiguity. And we need, in the church, a dose of that humility. A willingness to say, I don't know the answers, but I know who does. Come, let's go find out together. That's the primer. Micah takes before a society that was coming unhinged, that was falling apart, that had no idea how to follow Yahweh, even if it wanted to, and he said, look, it's this simple and this hard. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with God. Words that could have helped Judah keep their society together. Words that can help us as the church be the people of God today. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 anchors the rules in the contradiction of the cross. We take some translation liberties with verse 18. Uh, The word there that usually gets translated in our more modern uh, versions as the message of the cross is the, the word message there is the Greek word logos, the word. The word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John chapter 1. The Logos of the cross isn't just a a bright and clear messaging strategy. It isn't just consistent brand identity. The Logos of the cross is a person. The Word who became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. That word, that logos of the cross, makes no sense in the dominant culture's framework. Jesus, when we take him seriously, makes no sense to the wider culture. Whatever our project is to try to make Christianity palatable, to dumb it down, to make it seeker-sensitive, to ultimately, if we take the cross seriously, none of those projects will work. 
Paul makes his point by developing a commentary on Isaiah 29, 14. And he quotes only part of it, as most of the New Testament writers do when they make comments on the Old Testament. So listen to Isaiah 29, verses 13 to 14. The Lord said, because these people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me, and their worship of me is a human commandment learned by rote. What do you think verse 14 says? So I'll stick it to them on the day? No, here's what verse 14 says. So I will again do amazing things with this people. Shocking and amazing. The wisdom of their wise shall perish, and the discernment, the discernment of the discerning, that's a hard one, shall be hidden. I will again do amazing things with this people. The Logos of the cross, the message of the cross is that God wants to do amazing things with his people. That God hasn't given up on us in our befuddlement and our confusion and and our frustration with one another and with him. Instead, the message of the cross is God is not about to be finished doing amazing things in our midst. But, Paul says, as he pivots in verses 22 to 25, I'm not going, God is not going to show those amazing things in the ways you expect. They're not going to show up in the conventional wisdom of the day because the conventional wisdom of the day is not God's wisdom. For the Jew, the, 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 the signs of faith and the wisdom of the Torah, and for the Greek, the logic of philosophy, were what carried the truth of the day. And Paul says... The amazing things that God wants to do in our midst, they're going to show up that way. Whatever we think the conventional wisdom of our day is, whatever philosophy we've bound our lives to, whatever, whatever set of principles we think govern the world, here's the good news. God ain't going to work that way. He's going to do amazing things that go outside our expectations. Now that hardly seems fair. There are rules in this world. Rules are meant to be followed. Well, I don't know. I guess when you're the creator and the king of the universe, you get to play by your own set of rules. And you get to say, I'm going to do amazing things in the midst of my people, even though their worship is rote, even though they've, they've memorized what it means to follow me and they think they've got it right, I'm still going to do amazing things through them in ways they can't even imagine, in ways they don't even expect. And then Paul pivots one more time in verse 26. And he says to the Corinthian church, now folks, Think about this for a minute. The Corinthian church is a church where people are 
having fights over whether you can eat food worship to, uh, offered to idols or not. There's incest going on. There are worship wars like none that we've ever experienced. This is, dis, this is as dysfunctional and messed up a congregation as you can imagine. This is not the poster child congregation for seeker-sensitive attraction to the non-believers in your neighborhood. This is the church that everybody puts a sign up and says, stay away, abandon hope all ye who enter here. And Paul says to that church, consider your own call, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise by human standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. We're going to have a congregational meeting today, our annual congregational meeting. <laughs> and it's going to be really easy for us to say, oh, we're just a little bitty church. We don't have many resources. We don't do much. We talk a good talk, but in reality, not much ever happens. Yeah, we could say that. And we could also say, with Paul, God chose what is low and despised in the world, things that are not, to reduce to nothing things that are, so that no one might boast in the presence of God. God's at work in our midst. I see it in every one of your lives. God's at work doing all kinds of craziness with each of us, nudging us in ways we don't want to go, encouraging us to become more than we ever thought we could, challenging our myths about ourselves and each other and our community. And I have seen the growth. I have seen the fruit. It is there. God is at work doing amazing things that we can barely get our heads around. Because when God chooses, God delivers. That's the point he's making in 1 Corinthians. That all the great and wonderful stuff that we think we're doing, or all the missed opportunities that we feel guilty about, really don't matter in the end matters is God chooses. God delivers. In and through and with and in spite of each and every one of us. So what does some of this mean for us this morning? Well, let me, let me suggest three things. I think there are some resilient requirements about being governed by the cross. First, it is the cross that transcends cultures and reveals God's truth and grace to us. We live in a time and a place where Western theology has begun to question the cross. Why would God, Father of all, commit infanticide with his own son? 
Why would he brutally murder him on a cross? Why is a symbol of torture and a hideous death the symbol of our faith? Isn't that a little dark and a little macabre? Western theology asks legitimate questions. But like most theology, it's engaged in a bit of an adventure of missing the point. See, the controversy of the cross misunderstands the nature of the atonement. Jesus willingly went to the cross. He offered himself. It was hard. He wanted to back out, we read in the Gospels, but ultimately he gave himself to this because it was the only way he could break the power of evil over creation. The atonement isn't God leveling out the score 999 million billion sins on this one column and one sacrifice on the cross on this column and now everything's made right. It was that the cross was the only way to destroy the power of evil that invades each of our hearts and that it can be done and has been done. When Jesus hung on the cross and cried out, it is finished, he told us in that moment that evil doesn't have to win. It is the cross that transcends our cultures and tells us about God's truth and grace. Secondly, it's the cross that makes justice doing, mercy loving, and humble walking possible. Because, brothers and sisters, we can't do that by ourselves. Not a single one of us uh, is up for a consistent life of justice doing, mercy loving, and humble walking. We need the power of the cross in our lives. We need, we need its counterculturalness to remind us that it isn't us in our good aspirations and our, our middle-class liberal sentiments that make justice-doing and mercy-loving and humble-walking possible. It's Jesus in us and through us that makes it possible. And so it's the cross that ultimately unites us into a community that can be resilient. We are not united as a body because we agree with each other. Lord, let me tell you, we do not agree with each other on a whole range of issues. I have had the privilege over the last few months of sitting with a number of you and having those discussions about how we do not agree with each other on a whole range of issues. But you know what? Agreeing with each other on a whole range of issues does not make us the body of Christ. What makes us the body of Christ is the cross. We are not united by our being nice to each other, nor by our agreeing with each other. As good as those things might be, and as, and as much as we might want them to happen. Neither are we disunited by our differences or our capacity to be difficult. And goodness knows, there are some of you out there who know how to be difficult. I won't name names, except for mine. 
We are held together. We are made one body. We are united by the cross and by nothing else. Does that make logical sense? No. Is there some magical sign out there that we can point to that says, oh, it happens? No. But it's the conviction that the Spirit of God drives home through his word to us whenever we open our eyes and look at it. It is the cross that ultimately unites us into a community that can be resilient to face all that it faces. It was St. Anthony, the uh, early monk, who once said, a time is coming when men will go mad. And when they see someone who is not mad, they will attack him, saying, you are mad, you are not like us. So this morning, against Anthony's observation and the reality of the cross as a countercultural symbol and the requirements of doing justice and loving mercy and walking humbly with God. Three questions. How much of your Christian walk is grounded in the requirements of the cross? And how much is simply conformity to what you know to be right? How much non-conformity can you tolerate in your own life? How much can you tolerate in the life of others in the community? How non-conformist is it to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God? There are two things Christians ought to be known for. We ought to be known for our radical love that transcends every barrier society can throw at us. And we ought to be known for our utter madness in the face of the conventional wisdom of our day. I want to be part of a community that's lovingly mad. Not maddeningly loving, I guess, but whatever. And so, one or two more things. Two quotes from Brian McLaren. The name of Jesus, whose life and message resonated with acceptance, welcome, and inclusion, has too often become a symbol of elitism, exclusion, and aggression. How will we change that? Well, Wendell Berry, that great theologian, essayist, poet, and crazy man, has a good formula in his poem, Manifesto, The Mad Farmer Liberation Front. He closes it with these two stanzas. As soon as the generals and the politicos can predict the motions of your mind, lose it. Leave it as a sign to mark the false trail, the way you didn't go. Be like the fox who makes more tracks than necessary. Some in the wrong direction. Practice resurrection. Brothers and sisters, there is no practice of resurrection until there's a recognition of the cross. Let's stand together and uh, receive this sending and our closing song. Do justice. Love mercy. 
walk humbly with our God. Not because we're the slickest, smartest, nicest people in the world, but because of the cross. So go in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Amen.